if you are just um, meeting with us for the first time during Pastor Gordon's series on uh, our story, it is my privilege today to talk about our story in relationship to what those of us who've been around for a while just call Article 10. And that's all I really need to say about it. We're going to be dealing with Article 10, okay? You've all got that down. No, some of you even have a copy of it in front of you. And, and Article 10 of the Articles of Faith in the Church Manual regards the teaching of Christian holiness or entire sanctification, which happens to be the cardinal doctrine of the church. We don't hear much about it uh, today as we used to. Uh, in fact, I was trying to think about it uh, back in the days, if you're really old like I am, you remember that we used to meet Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday evening, and, and usually the, the pastor kind of preached all three times. In fact, I was thinking about talking with a dear brother this morning from Texas that uh, my Texas father-in-law used to say he had a pastor out in East Texas for far too long, as I remember him saying, who had three sermons, had a sermon on getting saved, had a sermon on getting sanctified, and a sermon on paying your tithe. And he said we never were quite certain what he was going to preach on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, but he said we knew it was going to be one of the three. And uh, so that's the way it was in the church. And uh, the manual provided a code of conduct for us. In fact, my, my friend Reuben Welch always used to say that uh, as a young boy growing up in the church, he met the manual before he met the master. And uh, it was just that way. It's how, how we lived. And those were good days in the church. They reflected a desire of people in the community of faith called the Church of the Nazarene to somehow to begin to bear the image and reflection of God in the midst of a world that could really care less. And that's what was attempting to take place. Let me read to you, please, from... Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible this morning, but the translation that you have will not be uh, very different. But hear the word of the Lord this morning from Romans, chapter 6, beginning with verse 8 and reading through verse 14. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So that you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. 
And do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. These are uh, powerful words from the Apostle Paul, and we'll be talking to them throughout, talking about them and mentioning them throughout the uh, sermon this morning. Uh, some of you, I don't know whether we ran out or not, but received a uh, handout this morning. Uh, mine looks a little tattered here. I marked it up this week. But uh, this is Article 10, as it appears in the Manual of the Church of the Nazarene in our Articles of Faith, which is that set of standards, those set of beliefs that uh, identify who we are as members of the Church of the Nazarene. And it is significant, and I'll be making reference to that, and if you want to uh, perhaps make any notes on that sheet of paper, if you've got a stylus with you, you can do that. But uh, we'll be making reference to Article 10 as well. As we begin this morning, I want us to be aware that San Diego Mission Church of the Nazarene is a part of the International Church of the Nazarene, a group of churches governed by the General Assembly of the Church of the Nazarene, who are under the leadership, the administrative leadership, of a board of general superintendents. Our polity, the way we choose to operate as a church, is laid out in the church manual, which serves not only as a point of our doctrine, but as a point of our organizational policy as well, and it becomes very important for knowing the ins and outs of the administration of the church. For some of you, it might be interesting to know that the mission church here on this piece of property is neither an independent church nor an autonomous church, but we are an active part of this larger international church called the Church of the Nazarene that reaches around the world. Now, the 16 sections of our Articles of Faith set forth our doctrinal beliefs, uh, and the manual states that the Church of the Nazarene, from its beginning, has confessed itself to be a branch of the one holy universal and apostolic church, and is sought to be faithful to it. It receives the ecumenical creeds of the first five centuries as expressions of its own faith. Now, that is a very, very important uh, statement. Don't have time or really need to unpack it much further, but it is significant that we are a part of Christianity in its orthodox form as it has been lived out since the first century. And that becomes very, very important. This morning, it's my task to speak to you about, as I've said, Article 10 from our Articles of Faith, Christian Holiness 
entire sanctification. Now, during the middle years of the Church of the Nazarene, and let me explain that just for a moment, the church was technically founded in Pilot Point, Texas, in October of 1908. It was the amalgamation, the bringing together of four different holiness groups that had been meeting throughout the United States. And uh, it received its name really from the church and the churches now that were developing under the leadership of Phineas F. Brzee, who was pastor of the Church of the Nazarene in Los Angeles, California. And Dr. Brzee came its first, became its first general superintendent and was a leading figure in the church at that time. So, so when I talk about the early and middle years of the church, I'm talking about the, the teens in the 20s and the 30s on up into the 60s and into the 70s. And uh, those were important days for the church. The church was, was growing. Its influence was growing. Uh, and I was growing up in the church and finding a call to preach and experiencing my taste of being a part of, of leadership within the church. You see, during those early days and those middle years, the church placed a great deal of emphasis upon what were called at that time the general and special rules of the church. These rules frequently dictated the behavioral patterns of the members of the church. And now these general and special rules have taken on the name of the covenant of Christian character, which is important to a people who are seeking to become Christ-like, who are seeking to understand the restoration of the image of God in our lives. So let's take a uh, little closer look at Article 10, because there are some important things here. It's important to note, as we look at Article 10, that any Christian church, denomination, whatever it might be, standing within the boundaries of historic Christianity, has a doctrine of sanctification. I don't know whether you knew that or not, but I think I can say that without uh, any kind of fear of a reprisal. That uh, whether you were a part of an independent church that might have uh, ties with Martin Luther or John Calvin or even into Roman Catholicism, this idea of a doctrine of sanctification was exceedingly important. Of course, differences would arise in the definition that was placed upon the term and the biblical support that was attached to it by the church itself. There were other things, but, but those are the kind of that basic kind of understanding of why in some churches maybe the term is never mentioned and yet it's there, why in other churches it might be mentioned frequently. I would ask you, uh, with your handout in hand, to take a look at the uh, first sentence of the article. This is really significant. 
And really, if we had something to say about Article 10, it's kind of summed up in this first sentence. We believe that sanctification is the work of God which transforms believers into the likeness of Christ. Enough said. That's right. Amen. Amen. That is a powerful, powerful statement. Uh, If you were here when the service began, Cindy, I thought she was quoting, but she cheated and was reading off the monitor up here. Uh, (laughs) I've already teased her about that, so I think that's fair again. But from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, let me read to you at least verse 18 this morning because it is so important to what the article just says. Paul wrote, But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. These are important words. And this idea of transformation becomes really significant. You see... If we have come to Jesus, the church really believes that God is doing something in our lives that keeps us from being the same old schmuck we've always been. We are made new. Glory to God. See, I really believe that. I really believe that. And that's what the article is trying to say. Now, the tough thing is that sometimes the doctrine has been preached as though it were our duty to sanctify ourselves. But Article 10 says, clearly, it is the work of God. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's God's work. Now, I believe we have to be available and to live our life in such a way with such intentionality that we're ready to understand what it means to be Christ-like and what that impinges upon our life. When I was pastoring, I, I used to try to help My people understand that, you see, if I really believe that God's Spirit is living in me, I ought to act different than perhaps my neighbor who could care less about the things of God. Wouldn't you expect there to be some kind of difference? Now, the problem comes when we try to codify that difference and we try to create new laws to hold that spiritual experience accountable. That becomes the problem. But nevertheless, this work of transformation is God's work, and he acts upon us as we attune ourselves to his life and what is taking place as he is at work in our lives. So this work transformation 
Uh, you see, there are churches who will accept a doctrine of sanctification, but they certainly do not believe that there can be any kind of transformation within human lives. That we're just the same people we've always been. And to think that we can be made holy, that's what really the word sanctification in its Latin derivative really means. And so they settle for being declared holy, as though it were nothing more than a judicial act of God cast upon their lives. But it is this transformation, this work of God, that makes us new, not merely our human striving. Can I... Can I really get kind of uh, involved in the intramurals of the church here over time? See, when I was a kid, we we talked lovingly at times of, of the big five. Now, this is going to shock some of you, perhaps, if you've not been around the church very long. But this is how it worked when I was a kid. You didn't dance. You didn't drink, you didn't smoke, you didn't go to movies. Anybody know the fifth one? Huh? I I can't hear. Anybody? Didn't play cards, that's right. That's right. Rook, Rook wasn't involved in that. So, that, that was the big five. Now, now I, want, I, want, I want to tell you something. For some people, and I can say for some people because I was one of them, we almost believed that we were sanctified by default. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, therefore we are. And it dawned on me one time, there must be millions of people in the world who don't participate in those things. But who have no understanding of the restoring power of God in our lives. Enough of that for a little bit. We'll get back to it. The second paragraph of the article states that this act of God is subsequent to, that is, it follows regeneration, that is, the new birth, being saved. This is frequently referred to in the writings of the Church of the Nazarene as the second work of grace, or the second blessing. But you see, what I want us to sense is that the article goes further than to just think of secondness. When it talks about this new way of life, 
as believers being brought into a state of entire devotement to God. That's a powerful, powerful statement. To be brought into entire devotement to God. You see, my desire is no longer just to please somebody, some earthly being. My desire is to realize that my task is to be open before God. Not with fear, but with thanksgiving, because He is calling me to Himself to be restored in His image and to understand that that transformation brought about by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that God created humanity in God's image and likeness. The two words there are juxtaposed to add emphasis to God's creative work. To talk about image is not different than to talk about likeness. And to talk about likeness is not different than to talk about image, that they're there in parallel form. And they work together to help us understand how God has created humanity. But then Genesis 3 describes the fall of humanity through sin, through an act of willful disobedience to God's command. And there we are, alienated from God, in a horrible plight, facing the flood and its destruction and all that goes on. But if we keep reading... We learn that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is bringing about our restoration as his children. Now, dear friends, this is the tough part for any pastor. You see, we have to ask ourselves a question, a twofold question. The first It's what we've been dealing with. Do I believe that God can transform human life? That's the question. If I don't, then enough said, let's go get lunch. Might as well not worry about it. But, if we agree that God can transform human life, our task is to ask ourselves, If we are willing to live by God's grace as one who is being restored to God's image. Now, this is where it gets a little tough. Because there were plenty of people in my day and age as a young man, and probably I was one of them as a young pastor, but who wanted to tell people what it meant to live like one who was being restored to God's image. You see, I believe it is God's work through the Holy Spirit to help us to understand that role of life as we are being called to likeness. 
really interesting. If you want to read an interesting passage this afternoon, go ahead and read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Paul is not trying to give us a new set of laws, but he's trying to tell us how people who are really engaged in an encounter with God ought to consider living. And it's really interesting in there he says, hey, don't lie to one another. Oh, okay. People who are being restored in the image of God, Paul says, don't lie to one another. So when I told you you look marvelous this morning, I'm sorry. (laughs) Forgive me. Got that out of the way. And it's that sense of what does it mean now for me and you and us together as believers to become a reflection of the glory of God in the midst of a culture that could really care less. And really, even in the midst of a culture that would rather laugh at us than anything. The second question that I mentioned to you, of, am I really concerned about this restorative situation? You see, it's going to demand an ongoing sense of intentionality. That I live as God would have me to live. A way to get a handle on this transformed life, perhaps, is to take a look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31, when Jesus talks about loving God with all one's heart, soul, and mind, and loving one's neighbor as oneself. It's seeing how Paul rethinks that in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10 in Romans, which is another marvelous short paragraph that we can read. You see, John Wesley, from whom the Church of Nazarene receives its theological bearing, stressed the idea of love made perfect in our lives. Of perfect love, as he called it. He knew that this did not take place automatically. We don't somehow just wake up some morning because we prayed some kind of prayer and this is automatically going to last forever. We have to give ourselves to the task of being able to enter in to such love. For such a state of grace demands an act of personal consecration in which a person presents their life to God and to God's keeping. Lord, all that I am, all the stuff that I am, I give it to you. Those major hurts, the way I was raised, all of that stuff that I want to use to make me a victim as to why I can't be very good. I give it to you, God. Be at work in my life. I used to try to tell people that (laughs) when God, through his power, brought about the indwelling of his spirit in our lives through entire sanctification, 
that he, he gave us a shovel and he placed this before this giant mound of dirt. There it was. And our task was just to dig into that mound of dirt. Just dig. And in that mound of dirt, we'd begin to find things that made us who we are. Maybe how we dealt with anger. Maybe how we dealt with humor. Maybe some of the way that we dealt with our associates or those We were in administrative authority over. And sometimes we would find out some things about ourselves that weren't very pleasant. Now, you see, I used to think that when that happened, boy, another trip to the altar. No, I don't think so. But what it did demand is when I saw that and I recognized That it wasn't a reflection of a man who was seeking to bear the image of God in the midst of this world. My task was to give it to God and let Him take it. I didn't have to bear it anymore. All I had to do was get my shovel and get back to digging. Because I was probably going to find something else. Because there's been a lot of living in our lives. And we've piled up a lot of things that we need to give back to God. Now, no doubt when we were born again, we offered our whole life to God with all of its flaws and all of its needs. Yep. But now we're seeing it firsthand and encountering what God wants to do in that restorative process to make us whole. doesn't happen automatically, folks. It's an intentional thing that moves us on to be His people. You see, The difficulty here is that we are called to this life of restoration and to live it out in a fallen world, in a culture that cares little about sharing the holiness of God. I guess I could call people up here, but I won't. But but think of it. Here I am, stuck in the middle again. God's presence on one side, a mean-spirited culture seeking its own pleasure on the other. And there I am. Who am I trying to please? Who, and I say it prayerfully, for God's sake, am I trying to please? That becomes the question. You see, it is our task, as we give the Holy Spirit access to our life, 
that we not lose hold of this image that God is restoring in us. Let me read to you just the words that Paul uses at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I find so utterly important. Uh, don't have time to tell you now, but when I used to teach uh, Bible 102, I used to refer to these as the most radical statements in the New Testament. And I'd tell you why if you're interested, but uh, don't have time now. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own, for you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Wow. That's significant. But you see, this whole little passage just exudes the idea of purity, of temple purity. Of what it meant to enter into the presence of God. And it is that life that Paul wants to bring to believers. That we can have that restorative gift in us. Making a difference in who we are and in how we live. That is is just crucial and, and we need to understand that this idea of, of being God's people is not for our own glory, but it is to bring glory to Him. So, let me give you an illustration that I think kind of helps me understand this tension between culture and God. In my place in the middle. I was pastoring in Aurora, Colorado, and we'd kind of rebuilt our facility. And I was moving into a different office. And uh, some of you know my son Brock. He was maybe three, three and a half years old. And he drew his dad a picture for the office. Now, when I got that picture, I'm telling you the honest truth here now. It looked like a giant pickle (laughs) with a whole lot of toothpicks stuck in the pickle. And I'd listened enough to James Dobson that you didn't say to your boy, what's that? He said, "Uh, why don't you tell me about your picture, Brock? Well, he did. Dad, that's an airplane. And those toothpicks were the struts for the landing gear. And what looked like the warts on the pickle were the portholes for the seats where people could see out, you see. Now, there were no wings, there was no tail, there was nothing to make this airworthy. And you could have taken that picture up to the great draftsmen up at Boeing in Seattle. And they could have mocked it up and put it in the wind tunnel. And guess what? Hmm? It would never fly, would it? 
But I want you to know something, lady. For a three-year-old boy, drawing a picture for his dad's new office, that picture of that airplane was perfect. Did you hear me? Now, if he's drawn that same airplane when he's 35, <laughs> we got some developmental problems. But not for a three-year-old. And you see, sometimes we get confused by the language and we trip over it and we don't want to think about it. Perfect love doesn't mean that we don't live within the tension of our culture and God's grace. But we become more aware of it all of the time. It doesn't mean we always make the right decisions. But when we don't, we begin to grieve over it. And understand that we could have made a different decision. And we live our life with a sense of intention. And a sense of desire to please God in the midst of a world that could care less. Oh, I've got lots more. You want to be here till about 4.30. See, Scripture never declares that once we experience God's Spirit in our lives, that it's impossible for someone to sin. I know people have said that, but they were wrong, desperately wrong. But it does imply that it is possible to live without sinning. Oh, you said that in the pulpit, preacher? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 when you get some time, will you? I don't know why we ignore that. Read, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Just see what it says. The problem is not the problem of sin. The problem is our understanding of grace and of God calling us to himself and us living in the intentionality of that call with open hearts and desires to be a reflection of the character of God. Now, you've got to remember something. <laughs> We're out of step with most of society, folks. You see, whenever we talk about the things of God, we're out of step with most of society. Now, I'm just at the point where we can begin to unpack Romans 6. We've got to stop. But in Romans 6, the thing I wanted to point out, in verse 11, it says this. Let me read it to you. It says, So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. My friends, we've got some considering to do. 
as those who are seeking to be the transformed people of God. we got some considering to do. But that's not all. Get over to verse 13. Look what he says. Verse 13, he says, Don't go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness to God. So we are now in the considering and in the presenting business so that we might walk in the Spirit day by day by day. The old songwriter wrote, I have one deep supreme desire that I may be like Jesus. To this I fervently aspire that I may be like Jesus. My brothers and sisters, that's what the church means by Article 10. It's not to put you in a box. It's not to make you look weird. It's to liberate you to the fullness of God's grace in your life. It's liberation that we might be restored. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed just for a moment. You say, Bob, I've been afraid of that kind of life. That tension between the world and God can be scary sometimes. Yes, it can. But would you pray with me that I might be able to live like that? I've been around here a long time, folks. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if I could pray with you, if I could talk with you in the weeks to come, I'm available. I'm retired now, you know. I've got nothing to do. I'm looking for something to do. Would you just slip up a hand and pray for me? Anybody? We're not going to wait long. Anybody? Pray for me. Be glad to do that. Thank you so much. God's blessings upon you. And uh, Pastor Gordon, I don't know if I let you down, but that's Article 10 as I see it. It's our hope in the midst of the world in which we live. God bless you.